let's turn to the temple. Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 17. For these next three weeks leading up to Christmas, we are pausing our exposition through the book of Philippians in order to go back to the year 4 B.C. and look at a few passages surrounding the first coming of Christ. Now, the Gospel of Luke, Luke opens the narrative with the angel Gabriel visiting John the Baptist in the temple. So if you're there, verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just in order to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. O oh, Father, this is the center of all reality that you the creator of the world the holy trinity had always had in your mind to send the second person of the godhead to become one of us may we see the beauty of these prophecies may we see the beauty of the forerunner preparing hearts. May we again and again and again in our lives as your people prepare our hearts to see, to revel in the beauty not only of Christ being born but of having lived and suffered and died for us and for our salvation and raised from the dead as we sang this morning. That he, David's son, the king, will reign 
forever in us and through us and for us to the glory of God. May we be so blessed by your kind spirit amongst us this morning. Amen and amen. So if we're there, let's look at the passage. In verses 5 and 7, what Luke is doing here, it's character development before the drama begins. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Okay, so... These were dark times for the Jews in the land of the Jews in Israel. They were the days when Herod the Great was reigning as king. He got his commission from Rome, the Roman Empire. He got it from Mark Anthony in 40 BC. And he has been reigning from 37 all the way to 4 BC, the year he's going to die. He was a vicious, mean-spirited, fearful, always of his throne, that over those decades he had numerous family members murdered. When he's dying, five days before his death, he made sure that he had one of his sons murdered. He is the guy that had all the babies in Bethlehem killed. And so, it was at the end of his reign, in 4 B.C., that this story begins. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. These were both godly faithful Jews from the tribe of Levi. Now let's set the picture, which we should know. During this time, when it came to the temple in Jerusalem, and the priests serving, there were about 18 to 20,000 priests. Now, there were 24 divisions of priests. We see it in Chronicles. Zechariah is in the division of Abijah, the eighth one on the list. Each priest in their divisions would serve in the temple, like Zechariah, twice a year. That's it, for one week period. He'd go for one week, six months later he'd go for another week, and then they'd get on with their life and earn their living. When the division is serving, they were broken up into smaller groups so that, you know, Different groups would serve throughout the day, the different time periods for the week that they are there in the rotation. Verse 6 then goes on. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Read the Bible carefully. Be careful of taking terms in one context 
and just thinking it's got to mean that in every context. Like Christ is our righteousness. We have no righteousness of our own. That is how the Bible uses that term. There's another way it uses it, like throughout the Psalms, that those who are righteous before God, because of no righteousness of their own, are righteous in the way that they live their life as compared to the unrighteous. So, for instance, as you're reading the Psalms, there are righteous people, and there are unrighteous people. And when it says here, that these two Jews in 4 B.C., this married couple, were both righteous, walking blamelessly. It does not mean that they were sinlessly perfect or without the need of an atonement of Christ. It doesn't mean they were not affected by the fall of Adam. Like in the Psalms, the righteous refers to those persons who, by God's grace have been born again. They've been made alive out of their sinful death to God. Yet they're still sinful like David. And yet the point is, the righteous, they walk with God. They pursue God. They pursue obedience to His law. These two were righteous before God. It means that God is pleased with the way they live, as their life is evidence of their heart toward God. The fruit, quote, of walking blamelessly in all the commandments doesn't mean they never sinned against the commandments. Doesn't mean they don't have a disposition and desires of sin that they have to fight. It does not mean that they obey the commandment, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your might and all of your soul and all of everything that's in you. It doesn't mean that they've ever done that perfectly and without flaw. It doesn't mean they never coveted. What it means is that that's not their normal pattern of life as it would be if the Holy Spirit did not dwell within them. Savingly. That's what it means. Like for every Christian post Christ's resurrection, us today, if we truly are belonging to Him, we walk. Not sinlessly, not perfectly. But remember just a couple weeks ago in Philippians, Paul uses the same words we see in this text when he said, Christians, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. And we saw what Paul was doing is he got his language from the wilderness wanderings from Deuteronomy. And the unregenerate Israelites are the crooked and perverse generation. They weren't alive to God, like some of the remnant were. And he says, therefore, Christian, you're alive to God. Blameless means you walk with Him imperfectly. There is a righteousness about the way you're walking, not the imputed righteousness of Christ, 
But because of that now, in sanctification, Elizabeth and Zechariah were righteous. That's what he's referring to here. Go on, verse 7. Having said that now, as they walk with the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. And not only that, now both of them were advanced in years. The point is this. Elizabeth's wound, as we so many people suffer through this, they get married, they want babies, and they try, it doesn't happen, and something's broken. Something's not working right. She was barren when she was 18. They wanted to have babies when they were 30. Wasn't happening. When they were 40, she was barren. Now they're 55 or 60 years old, and it's impossible. Okay. There's the character development. But two more things I want to bring out before we put in the DVD and press play and watch the drama that unfolds beginning at verse 8. And the first is this. The last time that God spoke to the nation of Israel prophetically through prophecy that we know of was about 430 years before the angel appearing to Zechariah. That's a long time. I mean, just think, go back at the beginning of our nation, 1776, signing the Declaration of Independence 244 years ago. Go all the way back there. And now from there, you've got to go back almost 200 more years. And that's the last time God spoke. During those centuries, many eschatologies developed within Judaism, competing eschatologies. Most of them got a lot of things wrong. But the reason they developed was because of the Bible. They were based on clear predictions and promises in the Scripture that the Lord, Yahweh, will set on David's throne one of His children who will save Israel. There's tons of Scripture. I'm going to read one which is highly significant to what Gabriel says. And it's the last words of the Old Testament, in the way that we Christians order the books. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 to 6. Behold, God speaking, I will send you Elijah the prophet. Pause for a moment. When Malachi is given this word, Elijah was 400 years before he, Malachi. Okay. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of Yahweh comes. And he, this Elijah figure, will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, 
lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So that prophecy sits for 430 years. The second thing, before we go to the DVD, is that this is not a normal day of service for Zechariah. He's been a priest for decades. He's getting older. He's going to be retired from it pretty soon. He's been doing it twice a year, year after year. But each priest is allowed to be the one to go into the holy place alone and light the incense. Now, the holy place is not the holy of holies. That, there's a, still a curtain behind that where the high priest goes once a year. The holy place is, I don't know, is this 30 feet? It's like 30 feet wide and 60 feet long. It's this big room, but they're only allowed to go and do it one time in their whole life. He's never done it at this point. And those who haven't done it, what they do is they roll the dice, they draw straws, they, they, they do it by lot. Who gets to go? There are two offerings every day, the morning and the evening. The major commentator on Luke, Daryl Bach, describes it this way, quote, The chosen priest went into the holy place where the altar of incense, the lampstand, and the showbread were found. The priest offered the incense with its sweet savor on behalf of the people. The incense was a symbol of intercession prayers proceeding up to God. It represents the prayers of the people. Let's go to the drama. Verse 8. So now, while Zechariah was serving as priest before God, when his division of the 24, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense and the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense so this is forget about the angel this is the most intense day of zechariah's life he's going into the holy place as a priest alone to light the incense on this evening offering. On behalf of the people, he knows he's representing Israel, the thousands out there in the courtyard praying that the incense signifies their prayers to God. And as a whole, the prayer of Israel is Yahweh, our God, Send the promised one, the son of David, to deliver your people, Israel. And so he goes in. Obviously, he's very nervous. You know what this is like, right? You, 
You could be in your home and you walk into a room where you know no one is there. And then there's a shadow of a human being, a wife, a kid, and it startles you. He's alone. And then he's startled. First he's startled, he's troubled. And secondly, he's not just startled because he was right. There is another being. And it's not startled now. It's fear. That's the text. And there appeared to him an angel of Yahweh. A messenger of Yahweh standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. So the only time in his life that this guy gets to go be the dude who offers the incense, he gets the living bejeebies scared out of him. It's frightening. And I think... That's what happens. If an angel appears to one of us sinful human beings in order to give us a message, not talking about when we don't know it was an angel, I think that's what you do. You fall down in terror, in fear. That's why all four times in Luke's gospel, when an angel appears, the first thing the angel says is, don't be afraid. In other words, Calm down. It's going to be okay. Because I got good news, not bad news for you. And that's what he does here. He tells Zechariah the reason. Don't fear. Don't fear. It's going to be all right. How come? Answer, because your prayer is answered. He heard it. It's answered. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. For or because your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Now obviously this couple, like any couple, prayed for years to have a baby. I don't know if they've done it lately. And the people of Israel are praying constantly, send the Messiah the son of David, the king of Israel, to reign and banish from us all our enemies. And so he says, your prayer is answered. I think he must mean both. And the, because they're not two separate things. They're, they're one and the same. And the words of the angel Gabriel bear it out. Zechariah, you get your son. And the nation of Israel gets the forerunner. To the Messiah. Verse 14. And you will have joy, Zechariah, and gladness. And many, Israel, many will rejoice at his birth. Because he will be great before Yahweh. And he, John, must not drink wine or strong drink. Maybe, I don't whether it's the Nazarite vow or not, which that would mean for him. And he 
will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he, your baby John the Baptist, will turn. There's the word. There's repentance. That's what repentance is. Repent. Turn. He will turn many of the children of Israel to Yahweh, their God. And he, John, will go before Yahweh. Him. He'll go before Him in the spirit and the power of Elijah. In order to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. In order to make ready for Yahweh. People prepared. Zechariah and many will rejoice that this child is born. Angel says John's mission is to go before, chronologically, in time, and we know. What he did do through his preaching of repentance and baptizing, he will lead the way, prepare the hearts so that they turn to Yahweh as he goes before Yahweh comes. And that's why six months after this, the angel Gabriel will go up north to a poor teenage girl in an obscure village and appear to her. And Yahweh will become human in her. And the manner of John's ministry, he says what it'll be. It'll be like Elijah. Clearly referring to the prophecy from Malachi 430 years earlier. Not that it will be Elijah, but in the power and in the spirit of Elijah. And if you remember Elijah in his story in 1 Kings 17 to 18 with Ahab and Jezebel, and God said, nope, it's not going to rain for three years, and they're very angry at him. But the whole reason was God's judgment. Because the people of Israel rejected Yahweh as a whole. And not only that, had many of the Yahweh prophets killed and put up Baal prophets. And after three years, remember, he has the confrontation. Bring all the prophets of Baal. Go ahead and offer your sacrifice. And he mocked them. He mocked their false god. And then is his turn. And he kills the bull. Puts it there. Let's just dump more water on it. Dump more water. Because you're not allowed to light the fire. Your God has to. And God does. He turned the people of Israel back to Yahweh. Elijah did. John is that kind of a prophet to turn the people back to Yahweh. So that now they're prepared for Yahweh. That's our passage. So before I close, I want us to look at one part of this. 
that, that I find to be so, sometimes you get so blurred and screwed up within religion and Christianity. And, and that is, we live in a time of, that is unprecedented in human history when it comes to what we call social media. Media in general. And then there's a spirit in the age that just says, you know what? So many just think, if I can just be known by more and more people, get more likes, more friends, whether it's through Twitter or Facebook, or if I can just have my own YouTube page, and that's significance. And it isn't. Fame does not equal significance. There are famous people who are significant. Abraham Lincoln is famous. Significant. But there are millions of highly significant human beings who are not at all famous. And there are so many, most now, because in the way that our culture is, the vast majority of famous people are not significant at all. And the reason I say it and bring it up that way is this. Don't ever seek fame. Seek God. Seek significance. And don't let the devil lie to you about your significance. If people get really honest with their heart and we just go throughout the world, tell me about the most significant people in your life. Oh, they'll rave about that grandpa. Or that mom or that dad or that friend or that teacher that no one knows about. And here, what we have are two obscure, older, childless people. You say, well, they're famous. We're talking about them. They weren't famous. No one knew about them. They're hillbillies. Lived in the hill country of Judea. No significance. Long dead for their son. Went public. They're obscure. And verse 6 says, they were both righteous before God. And thus God used these two obscure vessels in order to bring about the revival all revivals to prepare the way. And in our day right now, I hope that God causes our hearts to grow, to pray sincerely that He would do a revival in our time. 
particularly here, particularly now, particularly on this planet and in this country where Western civilization is, is facing a frontal attack, which at the core means Christianity is. And we know through church history, often God, the way he brings about, these are sovereign acts of God revival, is through persecution, through suffering, the way he cleans house, cleans all the corrosion on his people and the church, is often through pressure, washing of stress, persecution. Don't deny me before men. And so we pray, God, do it. I don't mean, I don't mean revival, like let's just let's get revival going and put a banner up, take that one down. And Tuesday to Thursday night, 7 p.m., we're having a revival meeting. I'm talking something like the first great awakening in America in the 1740s, where the whole point is this, the church is to be faithful when God sovereignly moves in revival or when He does not. And many of those preachers, many of those hundreds and hundreds of preachers, not just the ones you know like, like Jonathan Edwards and Whitfield and Wesley, but faithful pastors preaching, and God just unprecedentedly was saving people, baptized, church-going people, and non-church-going people. We're desperate for God to do that. He does His part. We Christians, ordinary, obscure Christians, continue to do our part. And in our churches, to be clear, with the unadulterated preaching of the Scripture, of biblical Christian doctrine, and pray God move sovereignly. We should be praying for this kind of sovereign move in the midst of how the persecution is growing in order, God, get rid of the watered-down, shallow, seeker-sensitive, personality-driven church growth movement that is a blight on the gospel and a deception. And hardening work it does on so many hearts. True revival is a movement of God that begins in the church with His people. And it spreads out. It's not mere emotionalism. It is that which is utterly laid itself upon the text. Anchored in biblical. All of it. Whole counsel of God, unashamed of the doctrines that God has revealed to us about Himself and about us and about salvation and about the future. And it manifests itself in joy, in the midst of pain and struggle. And it manifests itself mainly in the fruit, spirit starting at its core, loving others. 
And the encouragement from what happened here in our text with Zechariah and with Elizabeth is that, like them, in dark, dark times, this was times, because you know the rest of the story, when the Jewish leadership was a horrific mess. And we, I don't know if you are, I am finding out that we have big problems in what we call American evangelicalism with a so-called popular leadership. And it's a mess. But God broke through. Broke through in their situation. You're gonna have a baby, Elizabeth and Zechariah. But it wasn't just a coincidence. God did not say, I don't know, let me roll the dice and see who I choose. No, it was these two who, quote, both were righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. It is through such obscure people who are quietly pursuing God, going about their duties of life, not trying to be like someone else. Through them that God brought about this great beginning and breakthrough in salvation history. If God, to one extent or another, brings true awakening in our day, it'll be His sovereign choice. We can't make it happen. And it'll be through ordinary people. Ordinary people who are on fire for the gospel. Who are on fire to love Jesus parent their children well, be kind to their neighbor, see something to do, they put their hand to the plow to do it, and walk faithfully in what God called them to do. It is, I want to declare, I, I wish I had a megaphone to the whole church throughout the world, but I don't. It is okay to be a Zechariah and to be an Elizabeth. It's important. There would be no John the Baptist without them. The precondition for deep revival is not just a John the Baptist over there over here and over there. God is sovereign to do that. But the key is many, many, many ordinary, obscure, Christ-centered people who are bearing the fruit of loving one another, serving a meal to a shut-in or to a cancer patient or where no one else knows but God. They pray. They pray for revival. 
They don't announce it on Facebook that they pray for revival. They just do. And they shine as lights in the world loving others. The call to the church is the call to be vigilant. As Malachi said, as will be the message of John the Baptist, to turn our hearts again and again. And so this is a great time as we have two lit. Pretend last week and we have this week. As we look at John the Baptist, we know that the angels go into Mary. As we again and again focus on the incarnation, God Himself becoming man to save us. As daily we say, Lord, create in me a clean heart. As He shines light on our, our sin. As we renew again the angel going to Zechariah and then to Mary. And we gloriously know the end result of that. Turn our hearts to you again this season. Let's pray. Holy Father, God of the angel Gabriel, the sender of John the Baptist to prepare our hearts, work upon our hearts toward you towards the truth, towards the gospel, bringing us to repentance again and again, and to joy, joy, joy in Christ. As we sing, who takes away our sin. Make us a people prepared for your sovereign outpouring of revival and mercy. We pray that you do this to your glory. Amen.